Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Welcome to Race and Democracy. And on today's podcast, we have a special guest, uh, the author Mark Whitaker, who is the author of the critically acclaimed memoir, My Long Trip Home. Uh, His latest book is the untold story of Smoketown, the other great Black renaissance. The former managing editor of CNN Worldwide, he was previously the Washington bureau chief for NBC News and a reporter and editor at Newsweek, where he rose to become the first African-American leader of a national Newsweekly. Mark Whitaker, welcome to our podcast. Hi, Peniel. Um, I want to talk about this book, uh, The Untold Story of Smoketown, uh, the other great Black Renaissance, your recent book, which is really now in um, in paperback, and it's been critically acclaimed and rightfully so. What inspired you to write this book? Well, you know, my father grew up in Pittsburgh, uh, and I used to visit uh, as a child. And when I uh, wrote my first book, um, which was started out as a sort of story of my long and somewhat uh, troubled relationship with my father, um, but then became sort of a larger family history um, of his family and my mother's family. Um, I started to do reporting on the Pittsburgh that he grew up in. He was born in 1935 um, and um, I grew up in the Homewood district of, of Pittsburgh. And uh, one day I came upon um, online a the archive hosted by the Carnegie uh, Museum of Art of, of photographs by the great uh, black photographer Teeny Harris. He was a photographer who worked for the Pittsburgh Courier. That was his day job. But for decades, he just traveled around the city taking pictures of all aspects of, of black life in Pittsburgh. And I actually came upon some pictures of my grandparents uh, my uh, grandfather, actually both of them were undertakers. My grandfather had come uh, wow. north during the Great Migration from Texas and uh, become uh, a mortician. And then he married my uh, grandmother, who had grown up in the Hill District, uh, and convinced her to get an undertaker's license as well. Um, and so there were pictures of the two of them sort of in their prime, kind of, you know, uh, pillars of the black middle class in Pittsburgh at the time. And then I started looking at all the other photographs in this archive of, uh, you know, great uh, jazz musicians like, you know, uh, Lena Horne and uh, Billy Strayhorn and Billy Eckstein, Mary Lou Williams, and of athletes who uh, came uh, through uh, Pittsburgh, uh, Joe Lewis and Jackie Robinson. And um, and I, I started, you know, to sort of, you could see just visually before you that Pittsburgh had been this incredibly vibrant and influential place. And um, so I started to do more research and I had um, known a little bit about the Pittsburgh Courier, the black newspaper at the time, but the more research I did, the more I realized that, um, uh, you know, in the center of all of this, um, starting in the in the 20s and 30s and through the early 60s was the story of this newspaper, uh, which um, during that time 
the the original big kind of national black newspaper with a national reach had been the Chicago Defender. Uh, but in in this in that era, um, starting in the mid '30s through the late '50s and early '60s, the couriers actually overtook it. Um, and so when I sort of put all of that together, the influence of the courier. Uh, the influence that Pittsburgh had had on all of these kind of iconic cultural figures. And then, of course, the fact that our greatest black playwright, August Wilson, um, was born and raised in Pittsburgh and then set uh, nine of his 10 great uh, uh, century cycle plays in Pittsburgh. Um, I thought that there was really, you know, a book to be written, which hadn't been written, Um, you know, aspects of the story. Uh, had been written uh, elsewhere, but nobody had really uh, put it all together. And when you think about this Pittsburgh Renaissance, and you talk about how writers from the Pittsburgh Courier referred to this area, uh, the Black community there, as Smoketown, mm-hmm. and you write that um, it Black community goes from 25,000 to 100,000 by 1960. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is fueling this Renaissance? We know about the Great Migration, and we've heard about the Harlem Renaissance and the Chicago Renaissance. What are some of the people? I mean, I, this was the first time I heard about Cat Posey and Gus Greenlee, the Negro Carnegies, um, Come Posey. Uh, I've heard about Billy Strayhorn, but had never read as much about Strayhorn and, and Billy Eckstein. Um, so, what's fueling this hundred thousand? And there's so many famous people throughout right. this book. Uh, what is fueling this? Well, first of all, 100,000, um, which, um, you know, really wasn't that much compared with uh, that many compared with um, Harlem and Chicago and a half dozen uh, other uh, northern black communities, um, which is one of the things that makes, you know, the influence it had in that period so interesting. Um, there were a couple of things that were kind of uh, unique about Pittsburgh in that area era for black migrants. Uh, one was, you know, th- that um, the um, the migrants who came north um, during the Great Migration to um, to Chicago, for example, came largely from the Deep South uh, along the Mississippi River. The migrants who came to Pittsburgh, particularly in the early phases of the Great Migration. Um, the Great Migration is considered to have begun uh, around World War One, but even before that, and then after between World War One and World War Two, came um, uh, more from the eastern and northern parts of the Old South, um, from states like Virginia, uh, Delaware, Maryland, uh, North Carolina. So, if they uh, their their parents or grandparents had been slaves. They were just as likely to have been house slaves, domestic slaves, as field, field hands, the kinds of um, migrants who were coming from, from, from uh, the, uh, you know, the cotton fields of the Deep South. Um, and so they arrived in Pittsburgh, many of them knowing how to read, uh, knowing how to read music, playing instruments with a great deal of, of sort of cultural sophistication. Um, the, the second element that made Pittsburgh unique um, was that um, partly because Pittsburgh had been sort of the epicenter of the Gilded Age in the late uh, 19th century, the place where, you know, Andrew Carnegie made his fortune and, and, and Frick and, and the, the Mellon banking family and so forth. Um, 
the uh, public schools in Pittsburgh at the turn of the century and between the two First and Second World War were among the best funded public schools in the country. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a huge sort of centrally located high school named called Shenley, another one called Westinghouse, named after um, uh, uh, George Westinghouse. So, um, and they were admitting black students, not in huge numbers, um, uh, but enough that uh, some of these migrants, you know, could 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 benefit. So, you know, Billy Strayhorn, for example, the great uh, musician who who became the great collaborator for Duke Ellington, uh, went to Westinghouse High School, as, as did my father later on. Um, uh, and then I think the third thing that sets Pittsburgh apart a little bit from Harlem, I mean, Harlem's Renaissance was, you know, very literary um, and very intellectual. And the, Pittsburgh had some of that. Uh, but, you know, Pittsburgh, again, sort of the legacy of the Gilded Age was had a much more kind of entrepreneurial mm-hmm. culture. Uh, it was a place where, uh, you know, there was a lot of status to, to, to people who started businesses. So um, I think it both attracted and then encouraged um, migrants like my grandfather um, who, you know, uh, wanted to start businesses. So there was a very sort of commercial entrepreneurial edge to it. And you mentioned the Posey family. Cat Posey was a um, came to Pittsburgh uh, in the late 19th century, um, he had been, uh, uh, had sort of grown up on steamboats and had, um, uh, become the first black steamboat engineer. And then, uh, once he settled in Pittsburgh, he started, um, building his own steamboats, investing in coal mines by the turn of the century, uh, he was the richest mass black, black man in Pittsburgh. He had this huge mansion in in in, in Homestead, and um, his son, uh, who was a bit of a, a kind of a wayward youth, but but then later sort of got his act together, and uh, became first the manager and then the owner of um, the Homestead Grays, which along with the Pittsburgh Crawfords were the two dominant Negro League teams uh, of the 1930s. And, and that's a whole chapter in my book. So, so, so there was really, you know, it was a place where, where business and the, and the aspiration to be, uh, uh, you know, to make it in business was celebrated even, even for the black migrants. And that's a great segue into a discussion of the Pittsburgh Courier and Robert L. Van, because uh, what you describe, one, he's a fascinating figure, but his relationship um, and the Pittsburgh Courier's relationship to Black sports um, figures like Joe Lewis and the the Negro Leagues, but also the way in which there's there's this entrepreneurial, but this this real pragmatism. When I think about what you describe with the Pittsburgh Courier suggesting at one point that A. Philip Randolph resign from being head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Carporters after initially uh, being real big fans of, of of his when the Messenger had a robust. Uh, 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 circulation and when black socialism wasn't a bad thing in the 1920s. So describe to me um, the Pittsburgh Courier, and it seemed to be an engine of so much. By the 1940s, it had its circulation was through the roof and it was leading the double V campaign. But um, what about the, what about Robert Van and the Pittsburgh Courier? 
Here. Well, you know, Robert Robert Alvan, I think partly because he died fairly young, he was just 60 years old when he died in 1940, is someone who, um, uh, you know, a lot of people haven't heard of, but he was a tremendously influential uh, uh, figure and black leader uh, in, in during this period. Uh, he was born in North Carolina. His uh, mother was a, a, a cook um, in a in a sort of a you know, a, a kind of post-slave plantation uh, household. Um, he um, uh, sort of scraped together enough money uh, working at various jobs in a post office and elsewhere to first go to a, um, a, a segregated black school in the South. And then um, there had been a, an abolitionist, a white abolitionist named Charles Avery, who uh, in uh, the 1870s, I think, had um, established um, uh, scholarships for uh, black students at what uh, was then called the Western University of Pennsylvania. It's now the University of Pittsburgh. And Van heard about <laughs> these scholarships and applied and kind of made his way on his own all the way to Pittsburgh got his undergraduate degree, and then became the first black law graduate of, of that university and had and set up shop. After the turn of the century, he had set up shop and, and intended to be a lawyer. But there was this little, um, at the time, it was essentially a pamphlet um, called the Pittsburgh Courier that had been started by this sort of dreamy poet. Uh, and eventually, this the, the founder... Uh, was looking for investors, and he went to, there was a, a social club for the black elite um, called the Luendi Club, and he met Cat Posey and a couple of other, you know, successful local black business people at the time, and they agreed to invest in his business, but they wanted, you know, to, to, to see it officially incorporated. So they approached Van to do that. And they quickly determined that actually Van would be a better uh, editor, publisher and editor for the paper than the founder. Um, and they so, so they pushed him out and Van took over. And then slowly but surely, starting uh, in, 19, in the 1910s and 20s, Van through a, a combination of very shrewd business moves, but also kind of editorial um, innovations uh, expanded the paper to the point where it overtook um, the defender. And, you know, he, he was, you know, it's, it's hard, you know, I, I think I, I show in, in, in my chapters about the growth of the courier to kind of differentiate between what was kind of a, a principled editorial stand on the part of the courier and what, you know, was the kind of coverage that would just grow circulation. You know, so he starts out covering crime stories, and then uh, he pivots to sort of taking editorial stands, you know, kind of on behalf of, of black rights. Then in the 30s, he jumps on the Joe Lewis bandwagon very early <laughs> on and, 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 and commits all of these resources. You know, and it's interesting because Joe Lewis, who has, you know, uh, started his boxing career in Detroit and then moved to Chicago, was right there in the defender's backyard. And yet it was the courier that became the, um, uh, the you know, decided it was going to become, the, and Van used the term, the Joe Lewis newspaper, you know. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, 
And and in fact, it's 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 the first chapter of my book. And the reason, you know, first of all, it's a great story, kind of like how they um, how they sort of helped build up Joe Lewis as he was making his way to the you know rising to the to the heavyweight championship. But you can literally see before your eyes how they ride the Joe Lewis story to overtaking uh, the defender um, uh, in, a, in a period of three or four years. Now, when we think about Lena Horn and Billy Strayhorn, Duke Ellington, um, you talk about Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, just uh, the jazz scene uh, seems like it was incredible there. Um, so let's talk about that in terms of... Um, you know, music, it seems like it was a music capital, uh, especially by the 1940s. Um, having somebody like Lena Horne, who becomes really this global black superstar, it seemed an incredible, uh, incredible, incredibly fortuitous, but also these, uh, these jazz players who are going to be so innovative and so influential. So talk to us about the, the music here. Well, again, you know, one of the interesting things about about uh, Pittsburgh, again, I mentioned that you know a lot of people, a lot of the migrants arrived uh, already um, reading music and playing instruments. So um, of of all of the you know, and there were great um, players of you know bass players and trumpet players and saxophone players that came out of Pittsburgh. But of all the jazz instruments, the one um, you know the 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 the, the sort of most competitive. Uh, instrument in in the Pittsburgh scene was the piano. I mean, there were just you know hundreds and hundreds of incredibly talented uh, black pianists. So Billy Strayhorn, who became a composer, originally that was uh, his instrument. Um, later, Errol Garner came along, Mary Lou Williams, Ahmad Jamal, who's still performing. Um, and I think it was you know, and it was kind of I, I point this out later in my my chapter about August Wilson. There's there is a reason that one of his plays is called the piano lesson, you know, because there were you you if you went, you know, from house to house, in in the Hill District, uh, in um, in Pittsburgh in the 1930s and the 1940s, you would see pianos, um, you know, often just you know kind of player pianos, upright pianos, whatever. But there were all of these, you know, young black musicians uh, playing the piano, so. And I think that that it was both because of, you know, that tradition, but also, frankly, because of the competitiveness <laughs> within the, the, the black music scene in Pittsburgh. You know, it was interesting when I was reading uh, some of the biographies and um, uh, autobiographies of, um, of some of these great musicians, people like Strayhorn, Mary Lou Williams, and so forth, you know, they, they would talk about their childhoods in Pittsburgh, but it almost made it sound as though it was kind of a miracle that these, you know, prodigies had emerged from this kind of small little industrial, you know, smoky, smelly industrial town. But in fact, it was the opposite. It was partly because, you know, they were exposed to so much great music and so much competition before they, uh, before they left uh, Pittsburgh. It's funny because, you know, all of those so Strayhorn, Mary Lou Williams, Billy Eckstein, uh, Errol Garner all grew up in Pittsburgh. Lena Horne did not, but the reason she ended up spending her late, uh, her early twenties in Pittsburgh, she you know she grew up in this prominent um, middle class family in New York, uh, but 
the sort of um, uh, the black sheep, as it were, of, of, of her family uh, of the previous generation was her father, uh, Teddy Horn, uh, who uh, became a racketeer, uh, divorced Lena's mother uh, soon after her birth. Uh, Lena, until her teens, was raised by her mother in New York. She was a bit of a, of a kind of a stage mother, kind of, you know, pushing her to, you know, perform at the Cotton Club and so forth. Uh, meanwhile, her, her father left and ended up in Pittsburgh as a numbers runner and, um, and running a hotel um, sort of as, 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 his, as his front. Um, and by her late teens, teen, Lena had gotten fed up with her mother and her uh, stepfather um, and, and uh, sort of, you know, parading her around um, uh, and trying to sort of push her into show business. So she ran away to Pittsburgh mm. to live with her father. Uh, and then she, she married a guy from Pittsburgh. So, um, and it's interesting, she later became best friends with, with Billy Strayhorn, although they didn't meet, uh, until after both of them had, had left Pittsburgh. Um, but, um, so, but she was, you know, at the time when just before she really took off and became nationally famous, um, uh, she spent several years in Pittsburgh and it's, and it's a really interesting story. Now you described the the decline of this Renaissance, and so much of it is connected to uh, urban renewal, connected to um, the transformation of the Lower Hill District, and just what people called slum clearance, or or um, uh, just trying to transform these neighborhoods. And, and in the process, there was a lot of destruction. So, what are some of the forces that lead to the decline? of Black Pittsburgh um, by the 1950s, 1960s? You know, it's interesting because I, um, you know, I, when I was kind of envisioning this book, I wanted it to be the story of Black Pittsburgh, but I also wanted it to, in some ways, stand for the story of Black America in this period, which, you know, as a historian, is relative to um, you know, the period of the Civil War and Reconstruction and the Civil Rights Movement starting in the 1950s, this whole era, I mean, a lot has been written about it, but, but much less than, than other era, eras of, of Black history. Um, so I wanted, you know, to, um, without, you know, making it a story of all of Black America in that period, I wanted to kind of touch on themes that were, were common with other black communities. And when you see what happened to this incredibly vibrant community, which I've been describing for the rest of the book at, in the last chapter, like literally within a decade, it's absolutely tragic. Uh, and it's, this, it's, it's a very similar story to what happened in other um, black neighborhoods across America at the time. Uh, it was sort of a perfect storm of of three things. One was um, the fact that a lot of these industries that had attracted blacks from the South uh, during the migration, um, uh, you know, started um, to decline. Um, so the steel industry in in Pittsburgh, the car industry in Detroit, the meatpacking industry in Chicago, um, uh, just at a time when whites 
were able to get loans and move to the suburbs, <laughs> whereas whereas blacks were sort of stuck in 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 these declining inner city neighborhoods. Um, the the second element was, uh, as you mentioned, urban renewal, um, uh, which uh, in often began with uh, white business interests in all of these cities, uh, thinking they were going to do something to sort of revive um, the downtown business districts. Uh, but uh, in the process, and you know, some people think this was also, you know, it was actually a deliberate part of the strategy, um, they uh, tore down a lot of historic black neighborhoods uh, uh, put up highways and other thoroughfares that 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 cut cut black neighborhoods off from um, from the downtown business uh, uh, districts. It was also the era of the growth of public housing, uh, which um, uh, you know initially was was sort of advertised to um, uh, poor and middle class black folks as as an improvement in their lives uh, and something good, but then ended up sort of again sort of cutting them off um, from, from the rest of those cities. So that's, that's something you see across America, but it's particularly poignant in Pittsburgh, where as a result of this big, you know, uh, uh, urban renewal plan, an, a very early one in the 1940s and, and, and 50s, they ended up tearing down, literally tearing down the entire Lower Hill, which had been the sort of the, the heart of uh, cultural activity where all the you know jazz clubs were a lot of historic churches uh, social clubs um, and to build a um, you know a, a, an indoor sports arena <laughs> uh, and a big parking lot you know so by the by the early 60s the, the what was left of the hill was completely cut off from the downtown area, uh, which used to be right at the bottom of the hill. Um, and then when you, the, uh, a series of, of, of urban riots, at the, which never got as bad as Pittsburgh as they did in a lot of other cities, but still did a lot of damage and kind of burned out a lot of the Middle Hill, uh, other areas. I mean, you go to Pittsburgh today and a lot of these entire blocks and kind of sections of neighborhoods look you know, frozen in time, you know, kind of boarded up and, and, and burned out, um, have never been rebuilt. And then the third, just quickly, element that I talk about, and I think it's something that's a little bit more sensitive, but, you know, at least in the case of Pittsburgh, I think was definitely the case, is what I call kind of like the black elite or black middle class brain drain. Mm. So, so this is like people like my father was born in 1935, who, before, who once you had the civil rights movement, affirmative action, you know, the opportunity, you know, uh, uh, non-HBCU, uh, more colleges and universities started to admit black students, you had the opportunity for all of these sort of what Du Bois would call, you know, the talented 10th um, um, uh, black folks uh, who in a previous era would have stayed in Pittsburgh or stayed in Detroit or stayed in, you know, the South side of Chicago and, and made their fortunes in one way or another there, they left to go to college or graduate school. Often they didn't come back. And just at a time in the sixties and the seventies, when these black neighborhoods were being destroyed and desperately needed, you know, strong leadership, 
this whole young generation of young people or many of them uh, had left. And, and, you know, I knew this a little bit and kind of, you know, from my father's story, but it was very poignant because I, I interviewed some of the descendants of the, uh, the major figures in the book, most of whom are dead, but, you know, their children and grandchildren are still, are still alive. And some of them also had the same story. They had left, they had spent most of their kind of, you know, adult lives elsewhere, but then they had come back, you know, in their, in their fifties and sixties to care for their, for their aged parents. And, and, and to this day suffer a great deal of guilt about not having been there for Pittsburgh, uh, when, when the black neighborhood there needed them. Well, returning to the present, um, really your final chapter is really well done, beautifully written about August Wilson. And I, I know I heard of August Wilson for the first time really in high school when I found out about Fences. And, and I've read his plays, I've seen his plays, um, very beautifully written. But as you point out, um, he's really more of a poet than a historian of Pittsburgh. Oh, nine of the 10 plays are set in Pittsburgh. But certainly he was always, always interested in this idea of uh, black vernacular and sort of the black quotidian, that the everyday black people, that's the stories he wanted to tell. And he right. felt that that black middle class had had to um, abandon its its sort of authenticity or its culture to get access uh, to, to um, uh, white mainstream um, context. Um, what do you make of what's happening right now when we think about 2020 and this year with the largest racial justice demonstrations uh, in American history, especially given what you just said about Pittsburgh, where there is guilt about um, Black folks who escaped, in quotes, not having been there when the city needed them. But what we're seeing nationally is that all these neighborhoods, whether you're saying Pittsburgh or or, or New York City, Austin, Texas, uh, where I'm at, Minneapolis, we, you know, there are people in need um, and, and so what do you, what, what do you think based on the work that you've done and all this journalistic and historical work, where are we at now, um, with these very, very pressing issues that some of which you describe very, very well in Smoketown, but that still, um, seem to persist even in the 21st century when we're many, many decades away from this period? Well, you know, I think that it is a a national shame that uh, many of these communities, the Hill District um, in, in Pittsburgh, some of the other historically black neighborhoods, but then, you know, all the other neighborhoods we're talking about um, in, in uh, not only in the industrial North, but also parts of the South, there are parts of those cities that are actually worse off today than they were in the age of segregation, which is, you know, um, uh, it, it, it's kind of difficult to believe, but I think that's true that, I mean, I think that there was, you know, in, in, in the great migration period, at least in these neighborhoods, um, you know, the opportunity for black folks to, um, you know, to start businesses, um, to get, you know, reasonably decent, uh, educations to find jobs in factories and so forth. You go to the, some of those neighborhoods now, I mean, I went to Westinghouse high school, which, you know, 
still has a kind of a, a hall of fame in that you go in the lobby and there are pictures of all of these prominent black folks, you know, who graduated from Westinghouse High School. Um, and it's a city, you know, now they, you know, they struggle to send kids to college. Uh, they just want to sort of keep them indoors and off the streets um, uh, every day. Um, uh, it's a, it's, 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 it's a very kind of sad um, spectacle. Um, and so, you know, I think that, and, 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 you know, these are the areas, I mean, look, there are problems between black folks and police everywhere you go in America. And, and, you know, we've, we've seen that so vividly in the last couple of months, but, but it's particularly bad in those neighborhoods where you have like, you know, you have the decline of these neighborhoods, which then, you know, kind of was accompanied by, this trend of, you know, militarization of the police, you know, much less sort of community policing, uh, much more kind of, you know, kind of going quickly to very hostile and violent uh, confrontations um, as opposed to mediation, um, a lack of understanding of the police of a lot of the sort of, you know, problems and issues that, that, that folks in those communities are, and also the fact that, you know, uh, uh, the uh, black folks, um, because of, you know, drug laws and sentencing laws and so forth and so on have become so vulnerable to the criminal justice system that, you know, everybody in those communities just lives in, in mortal fear of, of, of getting arrested for the first time or getting rearrested of being branded a felon for life, you know, which, which, which just adds to, um, the dynamic. So, you know, I, I, I kind of, look, a lot of issues are being discussed now and, and kind of inequities in, you know, every, every industry and every walk of life. And, and it's all true. And I think it all needs to be addressed. But I, I do hope that we don't lose um, in this moment of, 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 of awakening and reckoning a, a, a particular focus on what, on what, what has happened in the last 50 years uh, in those specific communities, because that's really where, you know, it's the worst for, for, for black folks uh, in America. And um, it would really be a shame if, you know, in all of the talk about, you know, more diversity in industry and more diversity in Hollywood and in academia and so forth, all of which are very important, you know, we lose this opportunity to seriously look at, look, look you know, and, and address, you know, the, the, you know, just, just, just all of the, of, of, of the destructive forces that, um, you know, that have been at play in, in, in those particular communities in the last 50 years. All right. We'll leave it there. We've been discussing the untold story of Smoketown, the other great black Renaissance with Mark Whitaker. Uh, this is available in paperback and he's also the author of the critically acclaimed memoir, My Long Trip Home. He is the former- hey, you forgot. You forgot one thing. Oh yes, I re I reviewed your latest book for the Washington Post, <laughs> and I gave it a much deserved rave. <laughs> I recommend it, and I and I'm happy to now recommend it yet again. <laughs> no, thank you. I, the Sword and the Shield. It's a fabulous <laughs> book. I I appreciate that. Mark Whitaker is the former managing editor of CNN Worldwide. He was previously the Washington bureau chief for NBC News and a reporter and editor at Newsweek, where he rose to become the first African-American leader of a national Newsweekly. And his latest book is The Untold Story of Smoketown, The Other Great Black Renaissance. 
Uh, it is out in paperback. It is a brilliant book, um, a page turner, terrifically done. Um, and we've been honored to have him as a guest on our podcast. So thank you. Thank you, Peniel. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.